Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. BST in the Ham Shack. Okay, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are. This is BST in the Ham Shack. My name is Rich, and this show is... Oh, what's that? What's going on? Intruder. Oh, hey, Gnorman. What are you doing? Uh, no, no, Russ said I could be here. It's okay. Intruders must be destroyed. Uh, no, hey, what are you doing with that? Put that away. Whoa, chill, dude. Chill out, man. Stop. Whoa, calculate the answer to everything. Hey, I think it worked. Awesome. Okay. Welcome to BSD in the Ham Shack from Greeley, Colorado. I'm Rich KD0RG. And this show is brought to you by the fine folks at Linux in the Ham Shack. Find out more at lhspodcast.info. Well, you might be wondering why I'm here and not the regular hosts. That's because Russ and Cheryl and Bill announced recently that they would be on a special assignment until early 2018, and uh, I had an idea from episode 175, where Bill, NE4RD, took a brief look at a BSD called TrueOS, and that show got me thinking about using BSD in the ham shack. So when Russ announced that the show would be on a bit of a hiatus, I asked if I could fill in the absence with this miniseries. And, you know, he foolishly agreed. <laughs> In the next few shows, I'll be taking a look at some history of the various BSDs, pick one of them to use in the ham shack, and report on how it goes. I'll try to answer, you know, silly questions like, <laughs> which BSD has the best mascot? <laughs> no. Uh, who the movers and shakers are in the world of BSD and, you know, what kind of support there is for us. We should get going and start off with the history of BSD. I thought I'd look and see how it all started and where it all started, and it was quite interesting. I found some stuff on the internet. Everything good is on the internet, of course. Why don't we give it a listen? <laughs> To understand the workings of BSD is to understand how a ballistic system is acquired. The anxious days, weeks, and months until idea has become fielded weapon. The men at this meeting are involved in phase one of a ballistic system lifespan. They are a source selection board. Their task... Hello. Seek out an industrial team to what? produce a missile and its supporting a- equipment. The wrong At BSD. Their disposal is the world's Are you sure? greatest industrial potential. Oh, a list takes shape. crap! Berkeley a software list of distribution. Who okay. might measure up to the challenges? I'll see what I can do. Thanks. A list of national resources. 
human and material. Have you ever heard of BSD? Yes, I think in the late 80s we had a fight between BSD and System 5, which was going to go on the Tektronix workstations, and they wound up with System 5 for the, uh, the uh, what is it, the architecture was the one that uses smaller amounts of processing. I can't remember what the name of it was, but it was, yeah, there was an issue of whether we would have System 5 or, or uh, BSD, and BSD was thought to be more or less secure. That's what they. That's why they picked System 5. What about using it in the Ham Shack? Ham Shack would be awesome. Well, we hope it's going to be awesome. So that was Paul, WD0AIO. I saw him at the Ham Fest recently, and Paul's just one of those guys that's done a little bit of everything. He actually uh, had heard of BSD. A lot of people I ask, <laughs> I ask whether they've ever heard of it, and they're like, huh, no, oh. <laughs> Anyway, let's start off with the history. Oddly enough, it starts in Berkeley, Berkeley, California. BSD stands for Berkeley Software Distribution. And in 1974, the University of California, Berkeley, started using uh, the Bell Labs Unix on a PDP-11. In those days, you had to buy the Unix operating system. You know, you got a copy of the OS and you, you bought a license. And everything was in source code. So they actually had the source which allowed them to modify things. So in 1975, version 6 Unix was installed, and a handful of folks worked on some additional software for the system. And it's those additional add-ons that became 1BSD that was distributed around to other folks that were using Unix at the time. In another office at BSD headquarters... Development continued, and they wrote little applications and stuff like that, and this went on for a number of years, and 2BSD came out in May 1979... It included VI and the seashell. Now, what's important to note here is that neither 1 or 2 BSD had a kernel, if you will. These were just add-ons, just, you know, little uh, utilities and, and patches and stuff like that. So 3 BSD was released in late 1979, and that was the first to have its own kernel. And that was written in order to be able to make better use of the virtual memory on VAX computers. And VAX stands for Virtual Address Extensions, I think. <laughs> I'm not sure. But uh, the architecture changed. The Unix that they had gotten for the VAX didn't take advantage of all the features that the architecture supported. So the folks over at Berkeley went ahead and made their own kernel to use that virtual memory. Constant checking and testing. A preventive maintenance program carried out around the clock. Continuing on, 4BSD was released uh, in November of 1980. One of the things that it included was a curses library. I'm just mentioning a few things. There's, of course, a bunch more over on Wikipedia. Link in the show notes. You can read all about it. There's also a bunch of other links that'll be in the show notes of audio and even YouTube videos. And we'll get to that in a, in a little bit. Let's see. Development just continued. 4.1 was in June 81. 4.2, August 83. 4.3 came out in June 1986. And that just improved, you know, again on the performance of previous releases. All of the versions up until now contained some AT&T Unix code and required a license. This led to a release of Networking Release 1, also known as Net1, Net slash one in June 1989, and it contained just the networking code that was developed outside of AT&T. It was a license-free 
package. I don't know what else to call it. It, you know, it wasn't a complete operating system, but it was all the, the networking code. A BSD developer then decided that it would be great to develop more of the code without using the proprietary AT&T code. And in 18 months, much of the code was rewritten and the few remaining AT&T files were removed from the kernel. This became Net2 and that was released in 1991 and it provided a foundation for a proprietary port known as BSD-386 and a free port called 386BSD, sometimes referred to as Jolix. Both of these ports were based on the Intel 8386 architecture. They get confused a lot. Their names are very similar, although one was a commercial product and one was a free product. And in California... Prototypes of these facilities were verified by baptisms of fire. So now we're up to 1991, 1992, early 92. And that is when AT&T filed a lawsuit against the company that was producing BSD-386. And an injunction was placed on the distribution of Net2. The lawsuit continued on for a couple of years. And I will give you a quote from Marshall Kirk McCusack, which is a summary of the outcome and the lawsuit. Quote, Code copying and theft of trade secrets was alleged. The actual infringing code was not identified for nearly two years. The lawsuit could have dragged on for much longer, but for the fact that Novell bought USL from AT&T and sought a settlement. In the end, three files were removed from the 18,000 that made up the distribution, and a number of minor changes were made to other files. In addition, the university agreed to add USL copyrights to about 70 files, with the stipulation that those files continued to be freely redistributed. A quick note, USL stands for AT&T's Unix System Laboratories. End note. So they got out of that one, and uh, around this time, there were people who were starting the projects of NetBSD and FreeBSD. We'll get to that in a little, too, but we'll finish up with Berkeley. 4.4 BSD was released in June 1994 in two forms, and this is after the lawsuit. So they had 4.4 BSD Lite, which contained zero AT&T code, and they also had 4.4 BSD encumbered, which was released for those who held an AT&T license. 4.4 BSD Lite Release 2 occurred in 1995, and that was the last release from the Berkeley Computer Systems Research Group. Sometimes you see that in print as CSRG, the Computer Research System, uh, Computer Systems Research Group. And that's when, uh, the development at Berkeley stopped on BSD. But, as always in the world of free software, somebody keeps plugging away. The infinite universe has at last become accessible to man. A real quick side note. I want to mention a discovery that I made concerning YouTube DL, which is a command line application for downloading YouTube videos with uh, automatic post-processing, like to different formats. Usually I'll take a YouTube video and I'll turn it into an audio file so that I can listen at work. What always is hard for me is figuring out the command structure because it's a command line uh, application. So the big discovery... is that there's been a YouTube-DL GUI version for a couple of years. <laughs> it's called 
YouTube-DLG, and it allows you to just paste URLs into a window, and it supports a bunch of different sites, you know, not just YouTube, Vimeo, all kinds of places, uh, I think NBC and stuff. And then you can select any reformatting options, and you can just let it do its thing. It queues them up, queues them up downloads them, post-processes them, puts them in a folder you want it to. Anyway, it's pretty, uh, pretty cool. Let's go back to the history. This, then, is the BSD story. A story that is still being written. So, who kept it all going? Well, some guys uh, thought it would be neat to mess around with all the code that was available, so NetBSD formed up and released NetBSD in April of 1993. And that was before the 4.4 Lite was released, but they wanted to get it going. Then in 1993 as well, FreeBSD was starting up, and they released FreeBSD 1 in November of 1993. Now, I got to mention, uh, I listened to an early early history of FreeBSD, and that was from a BSD can 2016. Rod Grimes gave a little talk about that. It was really neat because they actually had a server in the Walnut Creek offices. Now, if any of you don't remember, Walnut Creek was a company that would create CDs. They would take a bunch of uh, either freeware or shareware programs and put them on a CD and then sell them. They did this with Red Hat and all kinds of stuff. So there is an archive.org page for Walnut Creek, and there's a bunch of stuff, including an antenna CD that I downloaded. I have yet to fiddle around with it. But pretty neat stuff over there, and I have a couple of those. I think I have a, a Walnut Creek Slackware, and I think a Red Hat 5 somewhere in my collection. So shortly after NetBSD and FreeBSD got started up, of course, one of the original NetBSD developers got in a kerfluffle about who knows what and <laughs> decided to fork the project and started OpenBSD. OpenBSD release 1.1 was on October 18th, 1995. Now that we know a little bit of history about the BSDs, why don't we look at the individual BSDs themselves? Nothing but net. BSD, that is. The NetBSD project from the website is an international collaborative effort of a large group of people to produce a freely available and redistributable Unix-like operating system. NetBSD. In addition to our own work, NetBSD contains a variety of other free software, including 4.4 BSD Lite 2 from the University of California, Berkeley. One of the primary focuses of the NetBSD project has been to make the base OS highly portable. And I would say that if there was, and I'm not on the website anymore, <laughs> I'd say this is one of the main things that NetBSD wants to focus on. They want to work on uh, as much stuff as it can without changing a lot of code. So they are a portable operating system. Back to the website. This has resulted in NetBSD being ported to a large number of hardware platforms. NetBSD is also interoperable, implementing many standard APIs and network protocols, and emulating many other system APIs. That will wrap it up for NetBSD. I wonder what is next on the list. Don't tell anyone I'm free. 
FreeBSD, that is. <laughs> okay, FreeBSD, again, from the website. FreeBSD is a modern operating system for desktops, laptops, servers, and embedded systems with support for a large number of platforms. And what is the goal of the FreeBSD project? It is to provide a stable and fast general-purpose operating system that may be used for any purpose without strings attached. FreeBSD seems to be the most popular of the BSDs. FreeBSD.org has really good documentation for the project. They have a really complete handbook and a frequently asked questions section. FreeBSD seems to want to focus on being like a mainstream server platform. FreeBSD also has a lot of software that's available in its, in its ports collection. And it is the reason why a lot of other projects are based on FreeBSD, as we will find out later. So what's next? During these hostile and trying times and whatnot, OpenBSD may be your family's only line of defense. <laughs> OpenBSD. This is the project that forked from NetBSD in 1995. From the website. The OpenBSD project produces a freely available multi-platform 4.4 BSD-based Unix-like operating system. Our goals place emphasis on correctness, security, standardization, and portability. So far we've got net, free, and open, and OpenBSD brings us a lot of stuff. And I just found this, openbsdjumpstart.org. And it's uh, it's basically just like a 42-page slideshow, sort of, that just gives some very basic information on OpenBSD that might help you fill in a little of the, of the details that I won't. A lot of things have come from OpenBSD. OpenBSD is, uh, let's see, they're the ones that do the Libra SSL and OpenSSH. In summary, OpenBSD is free functional, and secure. What's next? Who's that? Is that a dragonfly? Nope, it's Dragonfly BSD. Again, just from their website, Dragonfly belongs to the same class of operating systems as other BSD-derived systems in Linux. It is based on the same Unix ideals and APIs and shares ancestor code with other BSD operating systems. Dragonfly provides an opportunity for the BSD base to grow in an entirely different direction from the one taken in the FreeBSD, NetBSD, and OpenBSD series. Dragonfly includes many useful features that differentiate it from other operating systems in the same class. The most prominent one is Hammer! Hammer time! Hammer is our modern high-performance file system with built-in mirroring and historic access functionality. Virtual kernels provide the ability to run a full-blown kernel as a user process for the purpose of managing resources or for accelerated kernel development and debugging. Wow, that sounds dreamy, doesn't it? Woo, I tell you what. The, uh, Dragonfly was forked from FreeBSD in June of 2003 by Matthew Dillon. Dragonfly uh, tries to be at the, the forefront of clustering it's probably a little more than we need in the ham shack, but you never know. Anyway, let's move on to the next one. What's that? Is, is that a ghost? 
No, it's GhostBSD. <laughs> GhostBSD is a simple, elegant desktop BSD operating system. It is uh, simple because it's built on top of FreeBSD and it comes pre-configured with lots of carefully selected, commonly used software that enables the new user, maybe like me, to use it to its full potential. It is elegant because GhostBSD uses the GTK environment to provide an elegant look and a comfortable experience. And it is BSD. GhostBSD, derived from FreeBSD, which has its roots go back to the University of California at Berkeley Unix Research. Ah, okay, you got it all right there. What are the goals of the GhostBSD project? They would like to have a pre-configured GTK desktop, simple installer, ooh, we like a simple installer, automatically configure hardware, we like that too, GTK desktop environment to support your day-to-day computing needs, I like that, easy software management, large number of... uh, software packages from the FreeBSD packages and ports, and there's a bunch of other things, one of them being a Linux binary compatibility to run almost any GNU slash Linux application. They also would like to support the ZFS or ZFS file system, which is a self-healing file system. And from ghostbsd.org is an announcement that after a year of development, testing, debugging, and working on our software package repository, we are pleased to announce the release of GhostBSD 11.1 is now available on 64-bit architecture with MATE and XFCE desktop on direct and torrent download. With 11.1, we drop 32-bit i386 supports, and we currently maintain our software packages repository for more stability. Yay! I think I might give this one a shot. What's next on the list? The clock strikes midnight. BSD! It's Midnight BSD. So, Midnight BSD is another free BSD. Free, free BSD. Namaste. Namaste. It is a free BSD derived operating system. A critical goal of the project is to create an easy to use desktop environment with graphical ports management and system configuration using GNU Step. The vast majority of the operating system will maintain a BSD license. Certain software packages use other licenses, such as x.org, GCC, and GNU Step. Midnight BSD was forked from FreeBSD 6.1 beta. The system was forked to allow us to customize and integrate the environment, including the ports and system configuration. And it is named after a cat. What more do you need to know about Midnight BSD? It is another desktop operating system pre-configured similar to Ghost BSD. And what else is out there? I love to hate the PC. PC BSD, that is. Nah, it used to be PC BSD. Now it's called TrueOS. And it is a Unix-like desktop-oriented operating system built upon the most recent release of FreeBSD Current. It aims to be easy to install by using a graphical installation program and easy and ready to use immediately by providing the Lumina desktop. 
or other desktops uh, if you want. But they are working on the Lumina desktop, which is really neat. I listened to a talk on it the other day given by uh, the developer of it. A couple of the developers on this project are brothers, and uh, I call them the Moore Gang. We got Chris Moore, Ken Moore, and Tim Moore, and I don't know if they're all brothers. They they look they look close enough. They also have Drew Levine, which is a big name in the BSD world, Joshua Smith, and Joe Maloney. They could all be big names in the BSD world, for all I know. But Chris Moore was the host of a BSD podcast called BSD Now, and I don't think he does it anymore. No, that's right, because Ken Moore is the Lumina desktop guy that I listen to. And the Lumina desktop is cool because it doesn't use, uh, it's trying to be, uh, well, you'd have to listen to the Lumina thing, but it's like getting away from HAL and DBUS and all that, I think. Anyway, I don't know what any of that means, but it sounded like it was trying to be completely on its own. All right, so that's about it for the, for the current ones. Uh, you know, I did run across some other things. I was going to mention a few more that are no longer around or no longer being developed, but one of them is called Desktop BSD. And it looks like the last release was a while back. I think it, I think it was in 2015. Yeah, it looks like the, the, the last uh, update was 2015. I do not think it's being developed anymore. Desktop BSD was based on FreeBSD. And again, just a, it, and it used KDE as the desktop. Another one that's no longer being maintained is called MirOS, M-I-R-O-S. Mirror OS BSD, and it was based on OpenBSD. It originated as an OpenBSD patch kit. I'm reading from the website. It has grown very much on its own, though still being synchronized with the ongoing development of OpenBSD, thus inheriting most of its good security history. And Mirror OS was a live CD. So you could boot, uh, you could boot into it, you know, without changing anything on your system, which is pretty cool. Then, there is one last thing I'm going to mention here. Like I say, there was another one, I think it was called NextBSD, that was uh, just a couple years ago, but I couldn't find much else about it, so I don't know. It was based on FreeBSD again. And this last one is called FreezeBee, and it is based on FreeBSD, obviously. It's a little bit old, not being maintained anymore. So FreezeBee, the goals of the FreezeBee project, they just had two goals. To develop a suite of programs to be used to create your own CD with all the personalizations you like, and to make various ISO images available, maybe each one with its different goals and possible uses. And I remember reading on a mailing list somewhere that at one time there was a ham radio frisbee distribution. And that wraps up a little overview of what's available for us. So what about resources for hams? What are the hams doing in the BSD community? Well, like I say, I listened to a bunch of interviews and talks. First of all, a couple of BSD podcasts out there. BSD Now is currently being produced. Uh, link in the show notes. Also, BSD Talk, and that is Will Bachman. And, and uh, I used to listen to that because it's short and sweet. And 15, 20 minutes, maybe 30-minute interview. And it, it, easy to listen to. Didn't take up your whole day. Wasn't three hours uh, of technical stuff that was over your head. It was just nice to listen to. And Will Bachman, KC1FHQ. Oh, he got his ham license. Yeah, way to go, Will. He's uh, recently licensed. He's a technician, March 2016. Uh, no antennas on his house, but he lives very close to the supermarket. 
Look him up on QRZ. Give him some lookups. <laughs> anyway, Will Bachman uh, interviewed Diane Bruce, VA3DB, back on, I don't know, BSD Talk 111. Let's give it a listen. And why, why does BSD make a good choice for an operating system to work with ham radio? Well, it's freely available. Had to stop it. See, Diane, you know she's telling the truth. We're cheap, and it's free, and she doesn't lie. Operating system to work with ham radio. Well, it's freely available. Um, a lot of the ham radio applications out there are written for Windows, and it's a little, it can be a little pricey. And the type of geek who approaches uh, FreeBSD is the type of geek who is quite often interested in ham radio as well. There, there are a few other uh, ham radio buffs uh, in the uh, who do source commits, but I won't uh, I won't out them. Okay, that was Diane Bruce, and she was being interviewed by Will Bachman on BSD Talk number 111. Diane, she's uh, VA3DB. If you look at her house, she's got a uh, what looks like, I think it's a tribander on one tower, and then she's got another tower, and it looks like she's got some VHF and UHF crossband uh, Yagi's with a dish, and she's she's got the real deal there, a little satellite set up, and then her... HF setup, and uh, she actually has written an article about ham radio in the FreeBSD Journal, the July-August 2016 edition. Just a couple, three, four pages. It's a good read if you want to read that. She's also been interviewed on the other BSD show, BSD Now, and this is from BSD Now, show uh, number 158, entitled Ham Radio and Pi, Oh My, and it's Jupiter Broadcasting that produces that show. And here she is on that show talking about the ports work that she does. Uh, so you've been very active in the ham radio community, including working on the related ports and tools for FreeBSD. What's the current state of actually being able to do ham radio stuff with FreeBSD? It's pretty good. A few couple of ports need a little uh, loving, but uh, we're always looking for help. Mm -hmm. It's uh, been a little tiring. I've had... Uh, We've had Stephen Shirt come on board lately. I helped matter him get a mm -hmm. get him a spit, and I uh, I'm hoping we get a few more porters. You don't actually have to be into a ham radio to be a porter, though, for ham radio ports. But it would be I don't see why you wouldn't want to uh, get a ham radio license after getting into the ports or doing that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, Adrian. Uh, who you know from the Wi-Fi, uh, all his mm -hmm. uh, Wi-Fi work has a ham radio license as well. So there's, there's a few of us around. See, it's good to know. There's a few of, a few hams around in the BSD world, and you can ask them questions. I actually contacted Diane and asked her a few questions about the ports. A little more about her, because this was interesting. It was from that same interview, and I think that was Alan Jude as the interviewer. I looked him up on QRZ. I don't think he has a license. <laughs> I might have been spelling his name wrong, though. Here's some more Diane Bruce on BSD Now, number 158. Uh, as a kid, I was always fascinated by radio. We'd go for long drives on the Sundays, and the radio would be on, and be all this music, and voices coming from the car radio, and you go, hey, that's neat. How does that work? And it's just natural segue from that into, oh, you mean you can do this, build 
stuff to do it yourself and it's just a natural say it just naturally came from uh listening to the car radio mm-hmm. trust me and you could talk back to them too which was really cool so some people i guess get into the broadcast side of it uh from that sort of interest but uh i want to actually know how it worked i still don't know but uh i mean what's an electromagnetic field but i know the math you just can't uh it's it's still still cool Mm -hmm. uh we know it's cool that was how she got into radio i thought that was uh i thought i just thought that was pretty neat so i thought i'd play it again diane bruce she works on all the ham radio ports and there's quite a few of them She's also very active on the Ham Radio on Free S- FreeBSD. There's a, a group. Ham Radio on FreeBSD project is an effort to make FreeBSD a viable OS for ham radio operators. Oh, wow, that's great. Okay. <laughs> she mentioned some of the team members there. I, I think she mentioned Steve Shured. I'm not sure. Anyway, she mentioned Adrian Chad, and his call sign is KK6VQK. And he is one of the porters as well. It was hard to figure out who the other people were. <laughs> so I went searching again for, for more. I, I found her right away when I was searching for interviews, but I eventually found another one. And this is Jason Wright, AI4JW, also being interviewed on BSD Talk number 82. With, uh, you know, with that Will Bachman dude, KC1FHQ. I'll keep throwing his call sign out there. <laughs> anyway, here is Jason Wright, who at the time was an OpenBSD developer. Not sure if he still is. All right. Well, maybe moving away from the spark into another area of your interest. Could you describe what packet radio is and how you use OpenBSD with packet radio? Well, um, actually, the, the packet radio stuff I've only recently gotten involved with, and that's uh, particularly to support something called APRS, which is the Automatic Position Reporting System. It's used in, in the amateur community. Essentially, it, it broadcasts your position, or it broadcasts the position of a device that you care about, or a radio that you care about. All right, there was uh, Jason Wright talking about that. A little further on in the interview, he talks about the digital modes. I also do some stuff with, it's not really packet radio, but it is digital mode radio where you're using DSP filtering and such like that to pull digital signals out of the air. One of the oldest modes is called RTTY, or a remote teletype. This runs at... Um, 45.45 baud. I didn't misspeak. There's no killa in there. It's 45.45 baud. Uses an old encoding called Baudo, uh, which is a five-bit encoding. So you've got uh, uppercase letters and numbers, and to switch back and forth, there's a, a shift sequence to, to switch from the letter case to the number case or number and symbol case. That mode's a lot, actually a lot of fun. And it's still very much in common use in the amateur radio world. The program I'm using under OpenBSD is called GMFSK, uh, which is GNOME Multiple Frequency Shift Keying. Um, There's another one called GPSK31, which is a GNOME Phase Shift Keying 31. PSK31 is another digital mode. 
uh, that's used. These are these are modes usually intended for keyboard to keyboard uh, conversation. So imagine AIM without all the reliability and with um, with uh, signal fading between you and your uh, destination. That's the kind of the best analog I can come up with. But all these applications, I've ported to OpenBSD, and they're in various uh, states of disrepair, waiting on me to get them into the uh, the port tree for uh, for everybody to be available. That was Jason Wright on BSD Talk number 82 with Will Bachman, KC1FHQ. <laughs> anyway, Jason Wright is AI4JW, and I, I looked him up and I found some pretty interesting stuff. He lives in uh, Idaho, and he worked for the Idaho National Labs. He mentions it in that interview that he worked for the Idaho National Laboratory. And uh, so I looked up the, the National Laboratory there. And they have all kinds of job postings. So if you want a job in Idaho, they have all kinds of nuclear backshift operator is a job title, director of IM performance management. There's a pipe fitter if anybody is interested, a telecommunications professional, RF engineer, lead communications engineer. Anyway, they have a bunch of jobs out there. And I get sidetracked. <laughs> I always get sidetracked. So I looked up a little more. And I find, I find this article, uh, let's see, posted on December 17th, 2010. Did the FBI build back doors into BSD? And Jason Wright was accused by somebody of putting back doors into the open BSD code. And Wright responds on the mailing list. And it says, I will state clearly that I did not add back doors to the open BSD operating system or the OpenBSD crypto framework. The code I touched during the work relates mostly to device drivers to support the framework. And uh, he says, I welcome an audit of everything I committed to OpenBSD's tree. I think this was all cleared up and there were found to be no backdoors, but I'm not 100% sure on that. I vaguely remember that story. I mean, that was seven years ago. That was our very own amateur radio operator, Jason Wright, AI4JW. Licensed in 2002. Oh, and he, uh, I don't think he works for the labs anymore, but he was the trustee of the, the Idaho National Labs radio club for a while. Link in the show notes if you're looking for a job. One last little bit. I didn't clip any of the talk. I, actually, I don't think it was an audio talk, but at the 2016 BSD can, there was a talk entitled Amateur Radio and SDR by Aaron Puffenberger, KG5DQJ. He is a general class with, it, it, when I looked him up, he only had 12 lookups. Can we help him out a little bit? That's on QRZ, which I'd rather you go to HamQTH, but I'm going to check real quick if he's on HamQTH. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll check while we listen to the song. So the song for today comes from OpenBSD.org. For every release, and OpenBSD does a six-month release cycle, for every release they try to release a song, sometimes they release more than one. This was the release for 3.1, and it's called Systemagic. We heard a little bit of it at the beginning of the show. It was produced and directed by Ty Samaka and Ian Knox, and here it is, Systemagic.
uber tragic. I really like that song. Uh, <laughs> they have a bunch of songs over at openbsd.org. Moving on. We are entering a new era of enlightenment. How ironic it is, then, that this same potential in the wrong hands can scorch the earth. This next section has nothing to do with BSD and the Ham Shack, but I was looking at archive.org for ham radio magazines, and I found one that I'd never heard of before, maybe you have. It's called Ham Radio Horizons. It lasted for only a couple of years, from 77 to 79, maybe. It was put out by the Ham Radio magazine, if anybody remembers that. Ham Radio Horizons was geared towards the new ham, and it was very interesting to look through it. A lot of the info is still relevant today. The first issue was in March 1977, and it had a bunch of articles, uh, one ongoing from CB to Ham Radio, and then an article on the Oscar program, and it had a really cool ad for the Soul 20 terminal computer complete with an 8080 processor. <laughs> I just thought it was neat. I like looking through the old magazines, looking at the ads. And like I say, a lot of the articles are still very relevant. And you can also get a perspective of what they were thinking about at the time. I didn't look at every issue, but I looked uh, at the November 1977 issue. And on the cover, it has uh, an SS, some SSTV <laughs> pictures. It had an article about SSTV and getting into it which was very cutting-edge stuff at the time. Let's see, it had an article on antennas for tiny yards, so small antennas for small yards. And then it had like an oscilloscope beginner's guide. But what I really found interesting in that one was on page 11, they have Newsline. And I believe it's the same Newsline that, that we still have that is still around today. But the last item in that Newsline brief was this, a quote, Former Gettysburg Special Licensing Chief Richard Ziegler received a sentence of 90 days in jail and 21 months probation for his conviction for bribery in connection with the issuance of amateur two-letter call signs. See Newsline, August and October. I thought that was very, very, uh, I thought that was funny. It was basically selling one-by-twos, I guess. <laughs> anyway, Ham Radio Horizons had a, a year-end wrap-up. So it had an article on semiconductors and how semiconductors are, you know, going to change the way everything works. It had uh, an article on old radio magazines, and it's funny. I'm talking about that magazine 40 years later, and it was talking about magazines from 40 years before then, in the in the 20s and the 30s. So uh, that was uh, interesting. And then there was a look at how radio will be in 1999. They were looking ahead, 22 years into the future. <laughs> And I will read a little bit <laughs> of it. It's on page 66 of the wrap-up, 1977. All right, here we go. There's two people uh, communicating. Breaker Breaker DX from WZ2ABC. Air WZ2ABC, your call has been sked to me by the SATCOM scan searcher. This is KG6XYZ. Roger Dodger, got you on visual, KG. I see we got channel 8899. I got that channel assigned to me last year and won a bundle on it in the random sked raffle. How about that, old person? That's a Roger. You're pegging my meter at the 10-4 mark, and you got one little green light to boot. Nice signal through the bird. 
Thanks, good buddy. I noticed we were assigned satellite number 765. Real interesting. You got two green lights at this end, and my processor indicates we have four hours of use before losing it. Anyway, it goes on for a good page or so. I like the Roger Dodger. Uh, anyway, they're talking about talking through the birds and automatic schedules, and I think computers break in and give them advertisements every now and then, too. <laughs> or something like that. Funny look at 1999 from 1977. So also in the Ham Radio Horizons, moving away from that, there was a supplement. And it was the Ham Radio, the, the parent organization, if you will, had uh, a communications bookstore, a big bookstore, lots of books, lots of things you could buy. And this supplement was probably shoved in with the magazine or something like that. Anyway, I was uh, looking through there because I'm fascinated by old ads, and I came across page 18, Microprocessors Anyone, is the title on the top of the page. And it's talking about bug books, and I'm like, bug books? So I keep reading, because my interest is piqued. I've heard this term before, bug book. I didn't, I never knew there was an actual bug book, but I look, and I'm sure enough, there's bug books one and two written by Peter R. Roney and David G. Larson, WB4HYJ. And I'm like, I know that guy. That guy just sold an Apple One. David Larson is now KK4WW. He recently sold an Apple One computer on Charity Buzz. It says here that the bids supported FAIRS, the Foundation for Amateur International Radio. And that is his organization with his wife and a couple other people. The goal of FAIRS is to build global friendships between peoples and nations. And the goodwill is created by providing training, equipment, volunteers, and other forms of assistance, such as disaster relief. FAIRS is a 501c3, promoting goodwill through amateur radio. So, yeah, David Larson, KK4WW, a really neat, neat guy, a vintage computer collector, which is kind of why he was on my radar. Yeah, just really neat. And he sold his uh, one of his Apple Ones. I think he got $401,000 for it. And David Larson was interviewed in 2015 on the QSO Today Amateur Radio Podcast, episode 27. I'll try to get a link in there for that, too. But, that, yeah, David Larson, KK4WW. The reason why Bug Books piqued my interest was because he runs the, well, he did run the Bug Book Historical Microcomputer Museum. You can learn more about that by checking out the show notes. That'll wrap it up for this show. I think the next time around, I'll give Ghost BSD a try, go through the installation, and see what I can get working on it. 7-3, everybody. Check out uh, LHSpodcast.info for more information. And I hope you have a fantastic day.